Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the break. We had a chance, Father, in our own ways to spend a, a week away and, and doing other things. We pray, Father, it was a time of relaxation and a chance for us to do different things than, than what we normally have been doing. But tonight, Father, we return back on Wednesday. We're looking for the continuation of this study and, Father, more than anything, looking for the Spirit to guide us and teach us in this day and in this uh, study tonight. Father, tonight, then finally into the study as we look at Isaiah, I pray, Father, that the wisdom that you have uh, placed in this book would be unveiled to us by the Spirit, a wisdom, Father, that would change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapters 40 through 66, the balance of the book, we call this second Isaiah. They present a very different kind of story, a very different pattern when compared to the first 39 chapters of his book. And in that respect, it mirrors the Bible itself. The canon of Scripture, as we, as we see it now today, has 39 books and 27 books. Isaiah has 39 chapters and 27 chapters. Second Isaiah is written from a different point of view. In the first section, he was writing either contemporaneously about his life or about future events, sometimes near-term future events, sometimes far-term future events but always writing from somebody who lived in a certain day looking forward. Now, Isaiah's writing as if he's in the future about events that occurred a little over 100 years after Isaiah's life. So the events uh, are events of his future, but in the way he writes, he doesn't write in the future tense. He writes in the present tense, as if he were there now. That's confusing if you're not looking for it. So you have to know, when we look from here on at future events, everything he writes in 2nd Isaiah is future. There is nothing contemporary in 2nd Isaiah. But sometimes he's talking about near term, meaning roughly 100 years from the time of his life. And then in other times he's talking about, once again, a very far future, just like we've seen in the past. So there's still that dual side to him, near term and far term, but both of them are future to when he lived, though he talks about one of them as if it's present day. There are several ways in which we can describe the differences between 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah and compare them to the way the Bible itself is divided. I'm going to use a chart. If anybody wants a copy of this, in the notes that are always available online, the teaching notes, you can download the teaching notes, which are simply a copy of what I have in front of me now, and there's a little chart in it. So I'm going to draw it more or less now. Let's look at the two parts of Isaiah, 1st and 2nd Isaiah. Now, what I'm doing in this introduction tonight, as we go into the text before we read any of it, is I'm obviously going to address this topic, first and second Isaiah, the, the differences between them and how they compare to the Bible. And then I'm going to start to show you the framework that he uses to set up the whole second Isaiah part of his book. So by framework, let me use a simpler word. If you're writing a term paper, what's the thing the instructor tells you you have to have at the beginning of your term paper? An outline. Or were you the kind of students who wrote the outline after you finished the thesis sentence? All right. I understand. Some of us did it that way. You know, the way I always said it, I used to teach technical writing at one point long ago, and I, I used to tell people, if you write your outline after you write your paper, you'll have a really good outline and a poor thesis paper. Nobody believed me then either. Okay. In the first Isaiah, God's instrument for his judgment, and always I'm talking with respect to Israel, right? God's instrument was what? Assyria. They're the ones who take center stage throughout the entire first book, first Isaiah. 
In the second Isaiah, what is the principal instrument? Maybe you don't know this, but it's Babylon. Babylon becomes the topic for second Isaiah. How does this begin to reflect the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Think about Assyria and what they did. Always with respect to Israel. That's always the focus here. Why did God say he sent Assyria? What was the reason for his judgment against Israel? They violate law. What is the result of violating law? What was the effect of Assyria with respect to Israel for violating the covenant of law? The scattering, the non-existence, the seeming disappearance. Now, we know that in reality they're scattered and that in the last days God will reassemble all the tribes. But when we're thinking of it just thematically, don't try to fit all of history into it, just think thematically and in broad brush strokes, violate law equals punishment, but more specifically, disappearance, annihilation. No grace, no recovery, no second chances. Violate law, you're gone. Moving to this side of the equation, in Second Isaiah, we're going to see Babylon at the center of his prophecies. We know from history that Babylon existed 120 years after Isaiah. That was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But there's also a future Babylon during tribulation, the Antichrist's Babylon. Both are important to Israel for different reasons. And Isaiah is going to weave them together. Just like we saw before, Assyria in Isaiah's day was a parallel to what? Assyria comes in as an army, attacks against Jerusalem, but can't take the city fully. They're destroyed in the end by Christ. That's a picture of the end times, but who? The Antichrist army. The Assyrian army is a picture of the Antichrist army. The Assyrian army is destroyed by the angel of the Lord. The Antichrist army is destroyed by Christ upon his return. Remember that parallel? So we were used to this already. We should have been. Looking at what Isaiah talks about happening to Israel in their day, and then looking forward to what does it mean for the times to come in tribulation, and Isaiah would make that same back and forth. He's going to do the same thing in Second Isaiah, but now we're not talking about Assyria. We're talking about Babylon. So the comparisons are Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and what it does, and the Babylon of the end times and what it does. And they parallel once again. Who did Bab- Babylon was, again, judgment against Israel. What was the effect of Babylon's judgment? What was the effect? They took who captive? Judah, which incorporated Benjamin and Levites. He takes them captive, but 70 years later, they come back into their land, don't they? What was the basis for their captivity? His basis for sending Babylon against Judah was not because they violated the law in, in the sense of what these did. It's for something more specific than that. Rejecting God and worshiping idols. It's fundamentally different, though. Just looking at it historically, Babylon and Assyria accomplished very different purposes with respect to the nation of Israel. They had different outcomes in the long-term sense. Judah was still inhabiting the land when Jesus came, hundreds of years after Babylon. Not, a northern, not the northern kingdom. It was always gone and stayed gone. Next line of comparison. First Isaiah focuses mainly on one theme. There's one overwhelming feeling you get out of studying First Isaiah. In a word, deliverance. The next several here are just notes. In First Isaiah includes an awful lot of history. He talks a lot about his own life. He talks about his own circumstances. Much, I mean, never mind the whole history of Hezekiah that takes a large part of the end of that book, right? There is no history here. Nothing of Isaiah's contemporary circumstances are recorded in 2nd Isaiah. It is entirely in the future. Last two, in 1st Isaiah, the Messiah is portrayed as a personage with what purpose in mind or with what goal or with what mission primarily? Conquering, judging, ruling, 
eliminating sin, conquering, ruling of that sort. I'm going to just sum it all up by saying conquering and ruling. In the second, in the second book, how do you think he's portrayed? To sum it up, there's a term that's commonly associated with Second Isaiah. It's two words, both begin with S. The suffering servant. Think about the New Testament versus the Old Testament with respect to God's portrayal. And I don't mean just one person of the Godhead. I mean in general. God's portrayal in the Old Testament is much more in this sense, isn't it? And in the New Testament, clearly it's in this way. And then finally, Isaiah's own life. His own life, his own perspective, his own circumstances, who he is and how he sees things is always right there in it. You get his own commentary, almost like he's... Uh, throwing in his own opinionated views of things here and there, even just in the subtle kinds of word choices he uses. I've tried to point those out from time to time when we've seen them. He's really in the text all the way through it, right? Isaiah's interwoven here. He's completely absent here. By absent, obviously he wrote it, but he's absent in the way he does not bring himself into the text at all. In some respects, you could forget that he was the one writing it. Whereas in the first book, you never forget he's the one writing it. Is there a parallel there? Who's Isaiah? Well, he's a Jewish prophet. Jewish prophets dominate the Old Testament. John the Baptist is the last one apart from Christ himself. And his statement was, I must diminish so that he may increase. You know, there's a sense in the New Testament that all prophecy ends because Christ has come. Now he is the fulfillment of all prophecy. He is the word. There will be no one greater to deliver the word. So there's no other voice in the text. You could contrast first and second Isaiah in fairly simple terms. Let me give you a summary statement about first versus second Isaiah. First Isaiah focuses on judgment for sin required under terms of the law. Second Isaiah, Isaiah emphasizes the grace of God made possible through a Messiah's sacrifice. That's law versus grace. These are broad characterizations. You could probably argue with any number of them. It doesn't really matter. It's just academic and interesting. But what I want to show you is Think about now from the point of view that Isaiah was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the books that now make up the New Testament were written, and even some books of the Old Testament were written later than Isaiah. And then the men who came along long after all of that and divided up the canon into books and chapters, how did they all know to come to 66 chapters, dividing them so perfectly that they matched the number of books in a canon that hadn't even been created yet? Well, of course, it's, it's, it's God. I mean, that's the whole point. The point is that the divisions and the, and the way they mirror the Bible give us internal evidence to understand its inspired nature and to pay attention to that division to see why did God go to so much trouble to create it. In some ways, you could say he chose Isaiah's book to be a kind of cliff notes of the Bible, at least on its major themes. Judgment, redemption, sin, glory through God's sacrifice and so on. All right. So that's the importance of this book. There is something rich in understanding the Bible at this level. And that richness is not limited to what you learn about Isaiah. That richness carries over into how you then can study other themes of the Bible having been counseled by Isaiah. All right? So that's why I stopped to do this. There's another way to divide this that's going to come up tonight in the text. You can divide it into thirds. Chapters 40 through 48, talking only about 2nd Isaiah now. So in 2nd Isaiah, you can say there's a first third... 40 through 48. There's a second, third, 49 through 57, and then from 58 to 66. And there's two ways, at least two ways, to see these thirds. Meaning, 
these thirds track along at least two different lines of thought. The one is that you see the three persons of the Godhead reflected in the focus of each third. The first third focuses on God the Father in the sense that it looks at God's authority, sovereignty, and His greatness. But from the Father's glory is the focus. The second one then would be the Son. And in 49 through 57, the second part, you see the Son as the suffering servant. That's where the suffering servant part of Second Isaiah comes to, to, to the foreground. It's in those chapters. The servant coming to redeem Israel from her sin. The third is the spirit. And the spirit's role is, vision, is seen in that third section because that's where you'll see the remnant of Israel and the spirit producing glory for Israel by being poured out on Israel and bringing them to faith, which we've looked at already in here, at, in, for example, in Zechariah. I told you there is a second way to drive down these thirds. Look at 40. Here's Finally, we get to the book. 40, verse 1 and verse 2. Here's Isaiah's framework. Here's his outline for all of Second Isaiah. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and she is received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That doesn't sound like an outline, but there it is. The Lord's Opening words in verse 1 are spoken to the prophets themselves. So when he says, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, he's speaking as if to Isaiah and probably also his contemporary who was Micah, but at least Isaiah. So he's saying to Isaiah, speak words of comfort. Does that sound like a contrast to something you heard in First Isaiah chapter 6? What was he told to say? Speak, but they won't listen. Totally different, right? Think about the difference between first and second Isaiah on that basis alone. Law versus grace. Can you speak through law and reach the Spirit? No. The flesh is powerless. It cannot accept the things of, of the Spirit, right? And the law itself, it cannot keep. So in the first sense, the spoken instructions of Isaiah were never going to have any positive effect, but they had to be spoken nonetheless. In the second part of his book now, what he is speaking will become comfort to these people. The sense of the statement here in Hebrew is when he says in verse 2, speak kindly to Jerusalem, speak to their hearts is really the sense of that in the Hebrew. Give them an encouraging word. Or another way to say it is win them back. Win them back to God. This is real similar to something God says elsewhere. For example, in Hosea, Hosea 2, verse 13, he says this, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifice to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Then he goes on in the next verse, 14. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her, give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about on that day, declares the Lord, that, I, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. And Ishi means husband. Baali meant when they used to refer to Baal as their god. So he says, you acted like a harlot to me first with false gods. But then in 14, he says, I'm going to allure you back. I'm going to speak kindly to you, winning her back. So that's the same basic premise that he's using to start Second Isaiah here. Now's the time to comfort and win her back at this point. In 40 verse 2, there's the outline. What are the three things? I told you there were three parts. They line up with these three parts. The first thing, what does he say? Warfare is accomplished. Warfare is ended. Second division. Her iniquity has been removed. This one 
should be easier to make a parallel from, right? From here to here. Okay. That one's pretty easy to see already. Third one, receive double. Now we're going to look at these three as they're being described in this opening set of verses. Understand what each three of the three mean. It's all part of an introduction. We don't get any further than the introduction tonight. Okay. First, warfare has ended. What warfare do you think we're talking about? Between Israel and God. Why do we know it's the Father in this case? Because who is Israel to God? The wife of Jehovah. Contrasted with Christ. Who is Christ's wife? The bride, the church. So there's a a, a lining up here of Israel to the Father in the sense of there was enmity or war. He was treated her as if she were a widow. Remember? A disobedient wife who is chasing after idols and is adulterous. And I set you out of my house for a while and you're off on your own and you're alone and wandering. But one day I bring you back into my home. The warfare has ended. How did he conduct the warfare as we've seen it so far? He fought battles through whose hands? The Assyrians. Remember, he called to them. He whistled to them. He brought them into the land. They came down and did what he wanted them to do so that they would punish Israel. Okay, that is over. So the warfare, he says, is ended. Now, where is Isaiah in time when he writes this? Before Babylon ever comes into the land, right? He's speaking about a future time, not his own time. But he's speaking in the present tense. Okay? Warfare has ended. So chapters 40 through 48 describe why the battle has ended. It focuses on God's superiority over idols, which is why he was provoked, right? Harlotry. She played the harlot. That's what provoked him. She broke the covenant. That's why he had to judge them. The warfare has ended. There'll also be a section in 40 through 48 where he contrasts Israel with the Gentiles who follow idols. And at the very end of this section, God's going to promise the end of the gods of Babylon, that the gods that mark Babylon will be ended, will be done away with. Now, in the end times, we can already look forward to that and understand how that's going to be fulfilled, right? Babylon itself is judged and is no longer on, on the earth. How does it have a near-term fulfillment in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon? How does the promise that the warfare has ended because their idolatry has ended, how does that have a near-term fulfillment in the time of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon? After they return from Babylon, the nation of Israel never again engages in idol worship. It never has. Now, that doesn't make them believing faithful remnant, right? They can still be unbelieving Jews per se. They're just Jews. They're not pagans. They're not Canaanites. They're not following Baal. They're not following anything else. There has never been a record of national idolatry in Israel since they returned from Babylon. The Babylonian captivity put an end to idolatry. So there's a near-term fulfillment in the sense that warfare ends, not to say that God's plan for judging Israel is finished. There's obviously the whole future of tribulation yet to come. But on a simple level, on one level, idolatry is put to an end by the Babylonian captivity. Part two, iniquity is removed. In a sense, part two is explained by part one. The war ends because Israel ceases to follow idols. And ultimately, in the time of tribulation, at the conclusion of tribulation, God removes ungodliness from Jacob, as Paul says in Romans. This section goes, as we said, from 49-57, focuses on the Messiah. The suffering, of course, is the atonement for all that sin. This is easy enough to understand. And you're also going to see the Messiah's suffering contrasted with his future glory. That's something we've seen already. Let me just address one quick thought in passing that you might find interesting, at least something you'll see come up in other studies. In this section, the suffering 
Messiah or suffering servant section, there is an interesting contrast that comes up over and over again. One moment you're talking about a Messiah that's clearly not going to end well. His life isn't going to come to a happy ending. And then you'll contrast that with a Messiah who has a conquering glorification, a very powerful reign as king. Now, how do you think the Jews, who were not able to understand Scripture fully by God's design, how did they reconcile those two? Suffering Messiah, conquering Messiah. How did they come to understand those prophecies? Two different people. There will be two Messiahs. You see this fact of life reflected even in the Gospels in a very subtle way. If you were to go to John chapter 1, verse 19, you would see the moment in which the Pharisees are confronting John the Baptist about who he said he was. Because they didn't understand who he was, why this crazy guy was off in the desert baptizing people in water. Who do you say you are? Listen to this quick exchange. Chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, but did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. They said, Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they asked him, Are you Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? Well, Christ, we know, would be the conquering kingly Messiah. Are you the one who's come to reign? No, he says. Elijah was the one that in Malachi was prophesied to return immediately before the kingdom is, is set up. So they, they try to understand, oh, all right, are you the Christ then? No. Well, are you the Elijah that's going to come right before the Christ? No. Oh, okay. Well, then, are you the prophet? Who's this third person? Why do you need another one at that point? The prophet was the suffering Messiah. The reason they came to calling the suffering Messiah a prophet was because of the way prophets often turned out. We kill the prophets. We stone the prophets, right? That's the way they were historically treated. So, kind of ironic, since those were the men who Jesus said their fathers were responsible for all that death, but nonetheless, they've come to identifying the suffering Messiah as another prophet who would come and die. So they were looking for one of two Messiahs or Elijah. None of whom, of course, was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. And in that role, he came before the first coming of Christ, just as Elijah will come before the second coming of Christ. So John the Baptist is a type of Elijah because just like Elijah precedes the greater coming of Christ, he in a lesser form precedes the, let's say, lesser arrival of Christ. That's the second section. The second section is about the Son, the suffering Messiah who removes iniquity. The first section was about God the Father, the one who is sovereign over this relationship, who made the decision to put enmity or warfare between he and his wife for her sin, but ultimately will restore her. That idol worshiping has been dealt with. The final section, 58 to 66, what is this about? Receiving double? Now, where do we hear of doubles in Scripture with respect to Israel? The firstborn has a double portion. Another way to look at that, it's easy math if you understand how that was done. If you have four kids, you divide your inheritance as if you had five, and the firstborn gets two. If you had ten kids, you divide your inheritance as if you had eleven, the firstborn gets two. That's how double worked. It's just one more. In keeping with that principle, the firstborn, Israel is considered the firstborn of God. He calls her that in Exodus when he talks about what he's going to do to the firstborn in Egypt. He says, because you've done this to my firstborn, here's what I'm going to do to you. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 is where you see God specifically calling Israel his firstborn. 
in a sense, this third section is also explained by the second section. Israel received a pardoning through the suffering of the Messiah, but it will come only after she has been made to pay double for her sins under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. She broke the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Israel had agreed to keep those terms, but she didn't. And remember how the covenant was constructed? Do these things, good stuff will happen. Don't do these things, curses will come. And under the terms of the law itself, the firstborn had this double portion given to it. In the way God deals with Israel, he gives it to her in two ways. She receives double for her sin, but then in her glory at the restoration, that nation will receive double in glory. So she receives a double. You see evidence of this in several Old Testament prophets. Let me just read one verse here and there out of several and you'll see it for yourself. For example, in Jeremiah 16, 18, here's God promising what he'll do to Israel for her sin. He says, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and their abominations. But in Zechariah 9, now listen to the other half, double restoration. Zechariah 9, 11, he says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. Paul really sums it up, though, neatly in passage that you're familiar with, I'm sure, out of Romans. Romans 9. I'm sorry, Romans 2, verse 9. Listen to what he says. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Now, he's not just setting a principle of order, meaning sequence. He's also talking about how the Jews saw being first. First always implied a double. That's just, it goes hand in hand. It didn't have to be explained. To the Jew first, to the Jew a double portion, then to the Greek. His point is, there will be tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil, to the Jew first, which means doubly, then to the Greek, similarly in reverse. The Jews have always been first in judgment. They will be first in restoration. They receive a double portion for their sins. All that takes place to them during tribulation, a period of time focused on them. Now, yes, the world as a whole is caught up in it, so there are some other Gentiles, right? But it's for that nation, and that nation receives the strength of it. When the kingdom comes and they are restored in the kingdom, however, they are also chief nation on the earth, All other nations support and serve them. They're the only nation on the earth in which the entire nation's inhabitants have already been restored into the new man. None of them are sinful. None of them are in a natural body anymore. So they are in a preeminent position in the restoration. So they have that double reward, if you will, coming into the uh, restoration. What must happen before any of us receive our inheritance? All the Jews must be saved of that day. Until they finally figure out who their Messiah is, we're all waiting for them because they're first in line. And until they figure it out, none of us walk into the kingdom. So the Jews are first in that respect. God has to correct all that he is doing with them first, and then we get to have our place with them as they walk in. But we don't get there ahead of them. So that principle is at work work here. So how will they ever get to the point where God is prepared through this principle to Give them double, not just in their sin, but also in their reward. How does that take place? The pouring out of the Spirit on the nation of Israel is the method. And that will be a focus in that last section of Isaiah. How he reaches the point where a remnant is restored and the Spirit's work results in all of these things taking place. Every time he's done with one of these sections and he's ready to move to the next section, he'll use one verse at the very end 
that is not related in any meaningful way to what he's just covered, but the three verses together are all saying exactly the same thing. For example, let me show you where they are. Verse 22 of chapter 48, 57, 21, and of course, 66, 24. They all talk about what? A statement about what happens to the wicked. Always a statement about the wicked. Kind of an odd thing to just throw in at the end of each of these things, right? Except when you begin to consider something about the purpose of Second Isaiah. Look at the beauty of this and how it fits with the New Testament and the Old Testament again. When you get to the New Testament, who's the New Testament written for? Believers. Now, you might have thought, well, it's for the world so that they could become believers. Now, it's through the Word of God that you become a believer. But my point is, when you think of the book as a whole, I mean, I don't sit there and read it as a whole and benefit from it unless I'm already a believer. The New Testament is written to disciple the church. And God can use it, of course, and does all the time to bring people into the, to, to the faith. But you don't make any real use of it until you already are in the faith. So it doesn't speak at length about what goes on for unbelievers, does it? It makes mention of them. It certainly brings up you know, issues and consequences of being an unbeliever, of false teachers and the like. But it doesn't dwell on that. It's a book of redemption. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a testament. The New Testament is a book about salvation and the glory for those who believe. Much like Second Isaiah, with respect to Israel. That's the focus in, in Isaiah, Israel. So the wicked are really an afterthought. But to confirm for us that the wicked still have judgment awaiting them, it comes up. Now, that's very different from the, New, from the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is very much focused on the failures of men according to law and the consequences of those failures at all places, at all times. And the news seems to be a reversal of that. It's really about a triumph over the sin of men by the glory of God through Christ. And I'll give you one perfect example out of the New Testament that, that solidifies this. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus using parables quite often to teach. And it was characteristic in many of those parables when he teaches, either about Israel or the church or some, some combination of the two, that at the very end of the parable, he's had slaves and he's had masters and they're doing various things. And then he ends the parable with a verse, one sentence. And it's usually something like, but the slave who did this will be cast out into that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Talks about all these different consequences. And then one verse at the very end about the wicked. He's paralleling the pattern that Isaiah uses, meaning here's a parable about believers and the consequences of a lack of using minas properly or a lack of being prepared for the bridegroom properly. But for that one who is not a part of this at all, but is in the wicked category, well, just let's remind ourselves they're all in the bad place. And people often get confused by that one extra verse at the end of some of those parables because you wonder, well, am I that believer? Who's that believer? That really worries me. Well, you have to see it in this classic biblical pattern that Isaiah shows us here where once in a while I remind our, uh, the audience of the fact that for the unbeliever they have no share or portion in any of this. They are in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as, as Matthew calls it. That's Isaiah's pattern here. It's like putting a period to something. Okay, before we get into the first section on warfare next week, let's conclude tonight by looking at a series of calls that take place. So here's what's happened. God's made this statement in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Call to my people, comfort my people, speak kindly to them. Now imagine a dialogue between nameless, faceless people in response to what's just been said. So look in verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, who is that typically associated with? John the Baptist, right? This passage is applicable to John the Baptist. The description of preparations here is based on a cultural thing that took place in Isaiah's day. When a king would come visiting another king or if a king that owned some distant land came to visit his property and you knew he was coming, the subjects of that land would prepare a new highway for the king. It was an honor. They would either take an existing road and clean it up, make it smooth, so to speak, or if, if they thought they needed to, they'd cut a new one in the ground. They'd actually go and clear land and cut trees and make a brand new path for this king, a new highway for the king. And that was a way of honoring his arrival. That's the sense here. Making a better and easier and, and, and more honoring path for an arriving king. Now, in the case of what's written in Isaiah, what is being said to, to be done in preparation for that king's arrival? Clearing rocks off a road? Cutting down a few trees? No. Mountains and hills and valleys being changed. Now, it's not metaphor. It's not exaggeration. It's literal. If it's literal, can it be talking about John the Baptist? No. He becomes a forerunner of this. In the same way I mentioned earlier, he is a picture of the one who actually fulfills this. How does Elijah's return actually fulfill this? How does he actually see these kinds of geographic things happen? Tribulation. The movement, I mean, there's parts of tribulation that tell us every mountain is moved out of its place. Elijah precedes tribulation, or is at least at the very beginning of tribulation. And his statements of Christ's return are accompanied by geographic changes of this sort, which announce, if you will, that the king's arrival is nearby or coming soon. And, and Malachi says this, by the way, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is a bonus question for students who pay attention. The great and terrible day of the Lord is a reference to what? Tribulation. Or more generally, the events surrounding Christ's return. But usually it means tribulation because it said great and terrible. It's talking about the time period. Elijah is going to come. He's going to come before tribulation. John the Baptist was a precursor to that, a picture of that. Here... God has said, send this call in verse 2. He says, comfort my people, speak to them kindly. Verses 3 through 5 is the first call. The first call. There's going to be three. You see three coming up again, right? So when God said to Isaiah the prophet in verses 1 and 2, speak to my people, comfort them, and talk to them in a way that wins them back, the response Isaiah gives in the introduction is three calls, which, not surprisingly, Summarize the three sections of 2nd Isaiah. Here are the three calls. The first call is a call of encouragement made to Israel by John the Baptist prior to Christ's first coming and Elijah prior to Christ's second coming. The first call was not effectual. The first call came from what kind of prophet? An Old Testament prophet. That's technically John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet. It's a call that Israel doesn't hear. And I don't just mean in the moment he spoke it. I mean in the effect of it. By the time his ministry is over, and for that matter, Christ's ministry on earth has ended, there's not been an effectual response from Israel. So he comes and goes with no effect except to picture the one that will have its effect. And that one that will, of course, is Elijah's call. Now, is Elijah personally responsible for seeing Israel receive their Messiah by what he says? No, that's not his role. His role is to prepare for that moment. But it is true that before all is said and done in that moment, they do receive their Messiah. 
So He is the one who effectively prepares a way that ultimately does arrive at their receiving the Messiah. Who's orchestrating all of that? If you can still keep it in the, in the terms here of what we started. God the Father, warfare ending. The call that will go out then is a call from the Father to prepare for His Son a receptive audience. The second call goes out with some pessimistic perspective. Look at verses 6 through 8. Here's the second call. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, well, what should I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. God's command to call out is repeated there in verse 6. So verse 6 says, a voice says, call out. That's Isaiah repeating what God said in verses 1 and 2. The second voice answered asking, well, what should I call out? But it's not a question because they don't know what to say. It's not like they're curious. Well, tell me what to say, God. It's a statement of frustration. What good is it to call out? Meaning, what good is it to talk to an audience that withers and dies? That is flesh, which means it doesn't last so that the call can, can make any effect over time. People are not listening and they're dying. It's temporary. It's passing away. In fact, when it says there that when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the word breath is ruach. It's also translated spirit. So that's the spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Just emphasizing that, that the movement of God among His people, they're dying out. They're not able to withstand and live. Another way to look at it is they were not able to receive John the Baptist, they're not going to live long enough to wait around for Elijah. That's 2,000 plus years away. What's the point? What good is it to make any kind of call? To fully understand how this fits, I need to remind you of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.22, listen to what 1 Peter says. He quotes these verses. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. This is the Word which is preached to you. What Peter is saying here is our obedience. Remember he starts there in verse 22. Our obedience in the truth. Our obedience to the truth came from being born again in a new seed. That new seed is not like the perishable seed that we were born from the first time, the flesh of man, that kind of seed, the literal seed of the flesh. We were actually reborn into an immortal seed, that being the Word of God. What he's saying is, the Word that was preached to us, the Gospel, became a source of new spiritual life to us, and we were born again spiritually by that seed, the Word of God, who is the Word of God. Who was the Word? And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. It's Christ the Son. So the second section, he says, is in light of the fact that men don't survive physically forever, he says, why do I bother calling out? Men are like grass. They're going to die anyway. They're just going to blow away. The answer to that at the very end is the Word of God stands forever. So the Word of God endures forever. The message will continue on. There will be a chance in the last day for Israel to still receive the Messiah because even though they did not receive receive Him in the first coming and He died and went away, died meaning physically on earth, died and then was resurrected and went away, the Word of God endures forever. 
the salvation that God has planned for them through a suffering servant will live on past his suffering moment. The Word of God will still be there when the time is right for God to bring about the redemption of Israel. So the second call in response to what God says to do for Israel is knowing that there will be the Word of God available. The call will continue to go out through the Word of God. So the first time it went out was through John the Baptist. The second time it's going to go out is through the Word of God on a continual basis. Now the third call, and this finishes for tonight, verses 9 through 11. Get yourself on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will lead, gently lead the nursing ewes. Back to good news. It's a sandwich here of good news, bad news, good news. The word for good news in Hebrew is what? One guess. Same word for gospel. So he says, O Zion, bearer of the gospel, lift up your voices mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of the gospel, and declares to who? Who, in, who is supposed to be hearing this news of the gospel? Notice it's very narrow. Cities of Judah, which means the communities immediately surrounding Jerusalem. And it's Jerusalem itself that's declaring the gospel to other Jews in the cities of Judah. And what are they declaring? Here is your God. In other words, I'm showing you who your God is, pointing it out. His reward is with him. His recompense is before him. All right, reward is an easier word to understand. Who or what is Christ's reward that will be with him when he appears for the nation of Israel? The bride, the church. It's his reward. Recompense is another word for reward in a sense, but it has a slightly different meaning. That's why you use a different English word here. Recompense is your wages or your, uh, what you get for what you earned. What does Christ have before him that he has earned? His payment from the Father for his obedience on the cross. The right to rule his kingdom, his seed of David over the nations. That's what he has earned, if you will. He has, he has produced in himself the right to rule because he conquered the enemy. He conquered the dominion that the enemy had over the earth. He purchased the earth. So his recompense, the right to rule is before him. So what is this all saying? It's saying the moment of his return, right? The moment of Christ's return, he comes with the bride of Christ. He comes to set up his kingdom and he comes because who? Jerusalem, the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, call out to him. Remember that from Zechariah 12? The call here in this third section then is the call that's prompted by who? The Spirit. So the third call will be the Spirit and his effect on the nation of Israel, which produces this, this scene of them yelling to their brethren in the cities of Judah, hey, here's the God we missed. Here he is. And in response to that, he says, behold, he will come with might. Here he comes to them for that call. So the three parts here also mirror the three divisions of second Isaiah. But when you stand back and you look at this, some part of you should be saying, if it starts off this intricate and complex and so much layers already placed in the book, then as I study it with the weeks to come, like through this section here, what I want to do is not just understand the myopic details of 40 and 41 and 42. I want to keep coming back out of that as a student. This is you speaking. Keep coming back out of it and asking, how is it reflecting God at work, ending the idolatry of Israel, putting aside the warfare, preparing them for redemption, and then on and on down this, this path here. Watching the majesty of how he puts all that together. I'm thinking, for having spent a better part of a, an hour tonight, 
going through this, that what we will be able to do going forward, my, my master plan here, is attacking the balance of 40 and into two chapters more maybe in the weeks to come where we aren't spending as much time trying to piece out the details of verse, each verse and, and perhaps being able to look at them a little more broadly because the framework here gives us the chance to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we do thank you for the majesty and for the wisdom in your word and, and for the opportunity to start to see it uncovered. Father, this, uh, this opportunity comes because we devote ourselves to it, because we are willing to sit and listen, and because, Father, the Spirit is able to work through our obedience. We do ask, Father, that there would be a continual desire to speak the truth we learn to others, that there would be a, uh, an understanding of how much it matters to you, whether we put it to work in our lives or not and that we can understand the privilege that you have extended to us, that we could study it in this way. Continue to draw us back, Father, and if possible, draw others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.